Hello, my friends. Mandy here with a quick invitation for you to join the Patreon for our show. We've recently switched up some of the benefits, including a new monthly workbook to go along with all the incredible content you're getting on the show. It's a quote yourself through grief kind of a vibe. And for only $10 a month, it is a wholly worthy and affordable way to invest in your own healing process without the commitment of a full coaching relationship. Learn more at patreon.com slash Mandy Capehart. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Thank you as always for being here. Now let's get into the good stuff. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 101, titled Overcoming Death Anxiety with Kaylee Daniel. I met this week's guest at a virtual conference where we co-presented a panel on grief and mental health. And as the panel ended, I instantly knew I needed more time with her. Kaylee Danu is an incredibly rich human who moved away from the clinical therapy world into life as a death doula, death educator, and intuitive life coach. Her 2022 TEDx talk tells her story of hitting rock bottom and death, literally, to learning how to approach herself with a new perspective that leads to long-term flourishing. This conversation is a little intense, covering ideation, death, disordered eating, and successful suicidal actions. Please listen with discretion. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. I'm Mandy, and I'm here today with my friend, Kaylee Danu. She is a brilliant death educator and death doula, which makes you right up my alley for this talk. But you have such an interesting approach to the work because of your life experience. So dive in. Tell us a little bit about why you're here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, I am present day. I work as a death doula an end of life doula death midwife. Uh, we go by several names um, and a death educator. So I not only serve the dying, but I also teach others how to serve the dying. And as a 31 year old woman, a lot of people are like, what? <laughs> how, how on God's green earth did you come to this work and why? Well, because I know it. So what I mean by that is I know death. Um, not only have I lost uh, some people close to me, but I, I've actually died before. You know, I make a really great party guest. Sure. <laughs> Thick on and popping. When I was 15 years old, I was hospitalized uh, for, for the first time, the first of about a dozen times for suicidal ideation. I remember the first time it happened, I was in my therapist's office and she asked, you know, if I was feeling suicidal. And I said, yes. And she asked if I had a plan. And I said, yes. And she asked me what it was. And I was like, I ain't telling you, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, you're going to get in my way. And um, now I know uh, because I've been through it so many times, but then I also went on to um, get my bachelor's and master's degree in psychology and worked as a quote, normal therapist for a bit of a time. That is the high distinction between passive and active ideation, which is like a massive red flag for all you listeners. If um Somebody you love has been struggling with what we call passive ideation, which is like, I don't want to be here. I wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. And verse, I have um, a plan to end my life. You want to intervene. You want to uh, have a different conversation. 
So anyway, that was uh, my first hospitalization of many. I was, like I said, through between ages 15 and 18, I was hospitalized about 11 or 12 times for active ideation and several suicide attempts. Um, the entirety of my senior year of high school, I spent in a long-term psychiatric facility, think like girl interrupted, um, a bit. I mean, that was, that's an old movie and a bit of that information is archaic, but that's the vibe. Um, and then when I was 18 years old, I got really close, meaning I hanged myself in my closet and I died. I flatlined. My heart stopped beating. I um, had also taken a significant amount of anti-anxiety. It's a benzodiazepine. And I took a significant significant amount of that. I um, hanged myself. And when my mother found me, I was um, blue. She cut me down. She attempted to resuscitate me with CPR. She was unsuccessful. Um, some, I don't, I don't know when 911 was called, uh, but it was at some point, obviously, but, uh, she's a nurse, you know, she knows CPR. She was unsuccessful at resuscitating me. Something sent her screaming out into the street. Um, at which point a police officer just happened to be driving by. He came in the house up the stairs. He, um, also attempted to perform CPR. And I want to make a footnote here. I tell the story a bit different in my Ted talk, but after I gave the talk, my in, in the TED talk, I say that the police officer had a defibrillator and he is the one who restarted my heart. And that is not the case. Uh, he did not. It was only when um, the ambulance arrived, they had a defibrillator and they restarted my heart um, with the defibrillator. And so I, I was dead like a long time. Estimation would be like six, seven minutes, probably more like eight to 10, which they rushed me to um, the county hospital where they put me in a hypothermic coma. Um, I was, you know, put on ice effectively for uh, four days. The first day the Red Cross was there, they were ready to take my organs for donation and um, kind of like hanging in the halls, waiting to see if I was going to make it, you know, spoiler, <laughs> I did. But, uh, you know, my parents both described those days as like the worst days of their life uh, because that we, they weren't sure. Um, then I, I stabilized, I was transferred to, I imagine like a normal ICU bed and then, um, to the psychiatric ward once again. And, um, you know, I, I had a good bit of retrograde amnesia. Like I didn't remember that day. I have journal entries that are really interesting from that hospitalization where, you know, cause I, I had bruises all around my neck. I had bit through my lip when I hang myself. So like I could put my tongue through my bottom lip. I have a, but like today, the only physical, physical evidence of my death is a scar, like a teeny little scar on my lower lip. Um, and so the journal entries I had written at the time were, I had thought I was in a car accident. Um, but I, like, I had no memory of what happened, of like what went on that day, but I have a lot of really interesting memories of like my psychiatrist sitting at the end of my bed, like crying. I have, uh, memories of like my roommate, uh, at the time. And it, it's, it's kind of a fever dream, but Aside from that, I was like fully intact. Like I was walking, talking, breathing, cognitively functioning, which shouldn't have happened. So that was my rock bottom, you know, and I know you know this, that usually, unfortunately, it takes a rock bottom for people to be like, well, I'm 
going to do something about this now. That was my first hospitalization. It was just like, there was something about it. There was something about dying and coming back to life that had me feel like, well, okay, this seems like not an accident. Right. This is a wake up call quite literally. And I don't know what to do with it because I'm 18 and totally disrupted, but there's got to be something to dig out here. Right. And so that was when I started taking therapy seriously Mm -hmm. because for all the years prior, I just like knew I was going to die by suicide. Like I was certain of it. Like it wasn't like really up for debate or negotiation. Like after my first couple of hospitalizations, I like knew what to say. I knew what to tell these doctors. I knew what to like do to fly under the radar to be well enough presenting that I could get by and then like go home after school and gas myself in my closet, which happened. Fortunately, I wasn't very good at chemistry, uh, so didn't work out. Yeah, but that, like I said, so that that was different. That was like jarring enough. Like at the time, I didn't believe in God or really have like a spiritual life, but I also did. I mean, you know, like parts work, right? Like part of me certainly did, but it didn't feel safe to like explore higher consciousness or spiritual connection. Um, but something in me like intuitively knew, I wouldn't have called it intuitive at the time, um, but intuitively knew like, all right, like you're here. So like, if we're going to be here, like I like, let's make it a little bit less miserable. Let's like not go back to the hospital anymore because the hospital is not a good place to be. Right. Like, I mean, it's, you know, that's a whole different conversation for a different day, but there is nothing more dehumanizing when, when all you need, when what we need most is attunement and um, grounding and regulation and love than taking away your shoelaces, your mirrors, your doorknobs, your belts, um, your personal effects and group therapy. Yeah. Then making crafts and, uh, and OT and RT. So anyway, um, like I said, a different conversation for a different day, but I knew I didn't want to go back to the hospital. That was like level one. And that was enough to like, get me to start talking and like, get me to start taking whatever this is seriously. And that was 13 years ago. And so I always had this like duplicity in me that like, if I, like, I was certain I was going to die by suicide, right? Certain of it. But also if I wasn't going to die by suicide, (laughs) I knew that I really wanted to be of great service. I mean, I always had this like service orientation, like as young as seven, I was volunteering with like disabled kids, soccer organizations. I was working in soup kitchens. I was teaching refugee children how to read. I was building homes for Habitat for Humanity um, through a church organization, even though I vehemently didn't believe in God, like all through high school. I always just loved people and wanted to love people really well. Um, And so I like, that was like plan B, (laughs) Uh, but plan B was like very far away, you know, Western model of psychology was what I knew. So I got my bachelor's degree in psychology, got my master's degree in clinical psychology, started working as a therapist and all the while, like I'm on my healing path too, right? Like I'm really in therapy pretty much always because the the joke that I make is I, I have been vehemently committed to solving my own murder. 
because it didn't make any sense to me why I was the way I was, right? I'm a white girl from middle-class suburbia, two-parent home. I was the anomaly throughout all my hospitalization. Happened. Yeah. And so I, you know, was always on my own healing path, but supplementing it with my own education, right? Like I wanted to serve and reach out and help others, but it was also like feeding myself, right? And so things got more like spiritual esoteric um, in grad school when I was doing all the right stuff, right? Therapy, meditation, had a great friends, had a lovely boyfriend, um, but I still needed my medication increased every six months. I was still like getting a little bit of the case of like, I wish I wasn't here or like, I wish this car would just run me over. And I was like, this can't possibly be it. Yeah. So that's when I started um, diving more into like spiritual soul work and it kind of inevitably led me back around to death, um, which in hindsight makes perfect sense. But at the time it was just like a knowing it was um, a series of really loud synchronicities uh, you know, some experiences in plant medicine, watching the right documentary, having the right conversations at the right time. And I was like, Shh, I need to work with death. Like I need to come closer to death because one, I know that like inherently that is now medicine, my body holds. And I also know that fear of death robs us of life period, end of story. Like if you think about it from like a, like a logical point, cause that might sound woo, that might sound a bit mystical or too poetic. But if you think about it logically, we live in a dual plane. Death is the other side of the coin. And to honor anything means to honor all of it, right? Like when we push anything away, we are in resistance to flow. We are resistance to magic. We are resistance to healing. We are in resistance to truth. And so by coming closer to the inevitability of all of this, we necessarily have more vitality. We have more freedom, more truth, more expression. And more radical appreciation for anything you love. And so for me, I think coming closer to death was a lot of things. It was me healing my relationship with this very like toxic boyfriend I had, right? Because for my adolescence, death was like this like lusty fantasy. It was like the boy band poster on my wall, right? I didn't know anything about death other than it ended this. Like, yeah, it's compensated work, but they're serving me. Like anytime I am allowed the opportunity to get in the room with truth like that, I am fed. You know, it, 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 it's work um, and it takes attention and education and intuition and like your energetic resources, but like there is nothing more sacred to me truly than somebody choosing to let you witness them in that state Yeah, as they get ready to make their final act. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's how I came to death work. <laughs> oh, Kaylee, thank you. I know you've told these stories a hundred million times, but the value of it and the 
honesty and humility of it never goes unappreciated because there is so much within what you said that is jarring and is hard and scary and complicated to admit to and hear from. But I want to hit on what you just said kind of close to the end there about reciprocity in working with people who are dying. And the same is true, I think, with what you were talking about earlier as well about being in talk therapy or being in these groups and recognizing, I don't know that I belong here because I can see, you know, the clear pathway for people who are struggling with trauma that has been affected, trauma that has been done to them and looking at your own story and saying, I don't see any clear pathways of trauma that have been done to me. How did all of this come about? I think that level of attunement to your own life is what allowed you to say like, oh, I'm a holistic person to deny this side of me that has access to spirit, to soul, to say that that part has something for me. It didn't come because you experienced a lifetime of obsession with death and dying, right? It It's not like, oh, this, this experience is now why I'm here. Mm-hmm. It's so much more complicated and deeper than that. And I think that even to say like, oh, I have an answer as to why I'm here. Even that is simplifying and really dishonoring the reality of how complex and beautiful your story is. And it's easy to say like, oh, okay, complex and beautiful. Like that was very hard and heavy stuff. (laughs) What you said at the top of, I come up, I come to people with joy and with happiness and with levity and with brightness in the world. That is the way that we can honor all of the things that we've experienced and all of the things that you have experienced without minimizing or without simplifying it down to, and here's my ABC plan to joy in life, die physically because we hear so frequently and, and you'll forgive me, right? I have an evangelical background. Um, and so all that goes through my head are those automatic thoughts of, ah, yes, die to self, carry your cross, move forward through life, bring life to others. And you know, whatever, we all have our own approach that works for a while. And then it doesn't, as mm-hmm. you've described so perfectly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you said brought me to this realization of where we tend to approach a heavy life experience, whether it's depression, ideation, breakups, any type of grief event, right? With the prescriptive approach of grounding, of meditation, of yoga, of medication, all of these things that we think will help. Mm -hmm. And from what I'm hearing you say, those are in my phrase, phrasing band-aids on bullet wounds, because there is a greater picture of our sense of self that needs to be explored. Mm -hmm. So what would you say for someone who's listening and hearing so much of what you said And is in a position where they're like, cool, talk therapy isn't helping. Yeah. Grounding is really hard to access. Meditation doesn't make sense. All of these little ingredients aren't adding up to the baked cake. Mm -hmm. Where do I, where do I approach myself differently? Mm. That's a question. That's a question. So I'm going to say some things that might sound uh, lofty, but I'm going to assert them as truth. I believe there is a place in all of us that knows what we need. And there's a place in us that knows 
has the answers to us. You know, it took me 12 years, but I found my answers. The case of my murder is closed. I know what happened to me. It's textbook, but I could not have found that answer because my body, my nervous system could not have tolerated those answers. And I have worked in every modality. I have used talk therapy, uh, craniosacral therapy. I've worked with holistic chiropractors, herbalists, uh, a shaman, plant medicine, ice, like cold exposure, yoga. And I, for a long time, felt like I was groping around in a dark room, just scrambling. Um, and then in the last couple of years, it's felt more graceful. It's felt more trusting. But I mean, that's the nature of healing, right? At first, when you're fried, it's going to feel frazzled because you're frazzled. You're fried. Your nervous system is shot. That's what trauma is. That's what grief is. And there's a part of us that knows exactly what we need, but it's it's not the logical part. It's not the part that goes to the white lab coat and says, yes, thank you, doctor. I mean, maybe it is. If that resonates in your body and sounds and feels like truth. And, you know, I'm a person, I'm a Gemini. I like it. I want a little bite of everything. Like I, and I am a sum my healing, where I stand now in my truth, in my fullest expression, in my joy, in my deep appreciation for life and my willingness to be with grief when it arrives is the sum of every book I've ever read, is the sum of every therapist, every friend I've ever had a profound talk with, every yoga session I've ever done, every dance I've ever done. Um, all of it led me to here. And so going back to the original question is, do what you want to do. Do what you're called to do. Because for a long time, like I wanted to dance, but I didn't dance. My body needed to dance. Yeah. I wanted to sing, but I, I didn't sing because of, you know, conditioning and being shamed and being made fun of when I was kid. I needed to sing. I needed to open my throat. Hello. I hanged myself. There was so much trauma yeah. stored in my neck. Yeah. And when I started singing, really, really great stuff started coming out. Yeah. I don't know. It it might sound reductionist. It might sound like, but I hope it lands on the ears that can hear it. But you have to go where you're led. Yeah, I agree And where with you. you're led, meaning like where your heart wants to go. Right. It's funny because when I was younger, I've been a singer my entire life. And I would mm -hmm. say, I could look back and I would say it when I was younger too, you can tell that I'm in good space when I'm singing just mm -hmm. casually throughout life. And yes. I would look back and be like, wow, my family's telling me to be quiet because I'm constantly singing all the time. But isn't that incredible that as a child, I could say like, well, I'm full of joy and it's coming out of me. And I totally know that I'm irritating you because I won't stop. And I'm probably mm -hmm. being super loud. But even the other day I realized, oh, that conditioning, great word, perfect use of the word came out in my parenting. And I had to apologize to my daughter who was singing and absolutely it was disruptive. Absolutely. It was a ridiculous song. And yet here <laughs> I was outside of the moment 
unable to join her in her joyful expression because I was focused elsewhere. And I apologized and said, you know, you didn't deserve that love. You didn't deserve that expression. You didn't deserve to be minimized. So while I may say externally, Ooh, this feels grating. What's happening is internally you're accessing something that in that moment, I don't have access to. And she's nine. So obviously I used a little bit different wording, but (laughs) I was able to celebrate with her in a way that also asked for forgiveness and created an opportunity for her to say at nine years old, yeah, mom, that was not okay. And what I saw this as, even though it was, I mean, you could say it's embarrassing as a parent, but I have also been the parent that's like, I don't know everything and I will Mm -hmm. be wrong. And you as a nine-year-old have permission to call me out. There will be times that I say not today. But the majority of times you get access because I want an honest relationship. And what's interesting is I don't think it's reductionist to say, do what you want to do. I think do what you want has been taken from us a million ways to Sunday. So gifted to us. I think I can physically recognize the moment that that broke off of me mm-hmm. and, and is still right. No one's arrived. And so yeah. even as I say that, I'm like, just kidding. I can remember other areas where I'm absolutely holding on to confusion and trying to sort through. But that's, I think the beauty of what you're bringing to the table is it's process. There is no arrival. It's process. We can say we understand something and we're in the middle of it and we're confident enough to teach it and draw people with us and yet Mm -hmm. still be in process. Mm -hmm. How has, how has humility led your work when you butt up against the absolute wall of people who are like, how dare you make light of such heavy things? How dare you giggle with a person who is dying without, Mm. because it comes off, it can come off as minimizing, right? It can come off as like, oh, geez, that's a great approach to someone. My grandmother is leaving and you're here asking X, Y, Z, right? Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for this question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I did a, like a submission to Dead Talks, another wonderful podcast that highlights stories about death because we need that. And, um, you know, that was my first foray into, you know, don't read the comments lessons. And so, you know, there are plenty of comments that were really jarring about uh, my sinful nature um, and all that good stuff. But somebody had said, is, is anybody else pissed off that she's still not taking this seriously? And I just like kind of relish that and have a lot of like sympathy for that because mm-hmm. What I say to that is, so one, I don't claim to know anything. Like I know that I don't know anything. And what I do know is that this is all we got in a lot of ways. And to honor it means to honor it all. And joy is not happiness. Joy is presence to what is. Joy is gladness, not based on circumstance. And yeah, there's there's times where you got to hold grief and joy in the same hand. That's alive. Yeah. And I think, you know, honestly, Mandy, I have to say it's rare 
that I encounter people in my existence who do uh, find friction with the way I hold life and the way I present, because I, you know, I'm not necessarily like laughing at people when they're grieving, right? Like (laughs) I can attune, I can co-regulate. And I think what I hold in my body, I hold a frequency of just reverence. Yeah. I love that word. So I smile a lot. I giggle a lot. Yeah. And I love completely. Hmm. And so that means when somebody's dying too, and it doesn't like, I, I, I don't, I'm not of the belief that taking something very seriously is the only way to honor it. Yeah. In fact, I think it makes it a little bit more painful. It's comp it's more complicated to approach when you think it is a serious topic. And I don't mean to say exactly what you're saying. I don't mean to make light of it. I go back and forth with myself all the time. Am I a serious person or am I a very non-serious person? And the truth is yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Because I, you know, when there's conversations to be had, like I can dial in, I'm snapped in and like, I, I'm here with you and I'm attuned and I'm present. And this is all part of the ride. And this is a really beautiful moment. This is a really beautiful opportunity we have to be exactly where we are. Yeah. Let's be here with death, with grief. Yeah. I think what I'm noticing a lot in people is the aversion to non-dualism really shows up when we talk about death and dying and grief and life and all the sides, because I said, you said it earlier, grief and life are two sides of the same coin, right? Okay. But that's a dualistic approach. So what about the in-between? What about the intermingling of the two? And how do we, again, bring in a sense of understanding that allows for non-answers, that allows for space to just exist? And I think that that's something that you model really well and invite people into with the conversation. Because like you said, you're not sitting here and laughing at people. You're absolutely not being mocking. But when someone is suddenly hackles up about something you said, this is what I constantly am working on. And I'm sure you bring this to your own attention too, is that is a flag for them. That has absolutely zero to do with me. That is something they are recognizing as, Ooh, I'm super activated in this area. Maybe I'm really hurting and can't see it because I'm really close to that sensation. I've identified with that and I can't get back far enough from my somatic experience to say like, there's something in me, not that is me. There's something in me that needs attention. And I mean, it's hard not to look at that. And well, obviously if you have no agreement with them, you, you look at it with compassion and you move past, but in that situation, it's really hard when they are actively engaging you because that feels like agreement. It's really difficult for me. So I'd love to get your advice on not approaching it and saying, I'm not trying to talk down. I'm not trying to therapize. I'm certainly not trying to diagnose you. I'm recognizing that you might need someone to hold space. And I'm saying, Hey, do you need someone to hold space for this? Nine times? No, probably 11 times out of 10. I'm told Mm. how dare you. Right. And, and that's fine because that was never my intent. My intention was not like, Oh, I need to get this as a client or I need to be the one that helps them. It was, I just 
want to let them know they're seen, even though it's going to suck. And they most likely don't want to be seen despite engaging. Mm. I feel like that probably describes a lot of the people who said, how could she be laughing at a time like this? How could she be so joyful? I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I just, I learned a long time ago. Honestly, this is one of the most valuable lessons that I ever learned early in my, you know, formal, uh, like clinical education. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything for anybody. Right. And you can't, change people's minds. And Ram Das said this best. I think you, all you can do is be an environment in which people can come up for air if they want to. Mm. And that is my philosophy for all of my relationships is just to be spacious enough for them to be angry to be frustrated to be small to be hiding to be beautiful to be vulnerable to be open and I've had a number of experiences where I literally I literally thought I was gonna get hit um and I felt the fear like this was somebody I was working with. <laughs> um, and I felt my fear zip through my nervous system and just, I dropped it because I, you know, I go into my work prepared. I set my intentions. I get in my body and I say my prayer and open up and trust that I'm going to be led, that I'm going to be shown what needs to be said or not said or done and not done and whatever for the highest good of all living beings. And I've, you know, I had a number of these experiences. I didn't always think I was going to get, get hit, but I've, I've, I've looked into people and seen the wildness, the, it is, it's a very feral state that grief and that anger and that fix this, Mm -hmm. but you can't fix that death is going to happen. And I've, I, like I said, I I haven't always thought I was going to get hit, but it has happened once. And I feel the fear jolt through my body and then I let it go. And I consciously open further. Mm. And then I lean in. Yeah. And something happens in them that they know that they can go, they can be safe if they want to, to go, to drop in another layer with me. And because it doesn't, it's, it's not what's said, right. But like, that's what, like, that's why you hire a doula. That's why you hire a grief support. That's why you hire a life coach is because you know, these places, You, you just need some guidance to get there. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of what I do is, you know, and like, yeah, people who are mad at me for not being serious enough about the fact that I kill myself um, or the fact that I'm helping people die. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a point in your story you could use like, oh, trust. I was very serious about it. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, well, you know, actually this is um, another one that 
for all the listeners, right? So I don't know if they do this anymore. It's been a while since I've been institutionalized, but um, very, very common in um, our like Western psychiatric model is to, and I mean, like it has some validity, it has some place, but it's common practice to ask suicidal folks after an attempt, was this an attempt or was this a cry for help? And I cannot tell you how oh infuriating that question is yeah. at least to somebody like me. Cause I think there really are people out there who didn't, who don't mean it, you know? Um, but I think a lot of people mean it. And as it turns out, it's kind of hard to kill yourself. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, that sounds crass. Uh, but it's also true. Like I should be dead several times over, but there's, yeah, there's something really, really incredibly infuriating and invalidating about that. So I don't know, maybe leave that one out. See if you can find another way to answer, ask that if there's a person in your life who's uh, struggling with these things. Cause yeah, I was very serious. I assure you, I wanted to die. I think the thing about that, and I'm, you know, that takes me to like QPR training and thinking, cause I do, I also work with, um, lines for life out here in Oregon that responds to youth suicide in the county. Every County in our state has a team that goes in oh, and so beautiful. We definitely don't have that in your thing. Yeah. Well talk to Oregon cause they've figured it out and it's brilliant and nothing's Oregon's perfect. Got a lot of good stuff going on. We do. Um, but one thing about it that is interesting is I talk with families and, and peers and communities after they've lost a youth to suicide. And obviously the questions are always, how could we have known? What could we have done differently? All of the bargaining that we go through to try and make sense of what is nonsensical. Um, and I think a lot about like that question that you said brought up this idea of like, well, that's a trauma, lacking trauma informed question. The, was this just a cry for help? is so minimizing and so dehumanizing because yeah, duh. I mean, yes, most of the behaviors that are not socially calm, collected, invitational, most of the behaviors we have that do not open us, like you said, further into creating a container for each other to exist. Most of them are a cry out for help because we do not know how to get beyond the time when we were babies and it was okay for us to just cry and have someone for the most part expect that someone would respond to that, right? That language that we had as, as our infant selves, that embodied knowledge of what we gained there or what we did not gain, what we lacked is following us forward. And I think, and that's not to say like, oh, parents do a better job minding to your children. Like, yes, but don't <laughs> obsess because it's, what is it like a third you can be like a third of the time, really positive. And that's like the baseline. Don't worry. Your kid will be okay. Generally yeah, speaking. Parenting. Um, yeah. But I still think about how like, no, it's okay to go back into that younger self and say like, Hey, did you miss out on something crucial? It's not a failure of your parents. It's a failure of society. We're all super yeah. distracted and we're all carrying some kind of traumatic experience that you know, call it big T trauma, call it little T, however you want to address it, that is going to affect the way that we show up. And so if we are saying, is this a cry for help? Yes, all of it is, but maybe I'm too prideful to say, yeah, this is a cry for help. And in that situation, I think that's such an unfair question 
the answer is yes. Yeah. This was a serious cry for help. This was a very scary. I don't feel empowered to do anything, but stop existing. And I think what's hard is the way we try to analyze suicidal ideation or attempts on the other side of a successful attempt or otherwise is so, well, it's like I said, it's just dehumanizing, but it's because we're afraid of it. And Mm -hmm. the grief averse and the death averse society that we exist within needs more people like you who are willing to say like, I can sit in that chaotic discomfort with you. I can bring my regulation, but even in this moment, I know nothing. I'm not the expert you are. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that was, I love what you said when you said, I I know nothing because you're not actually saying, I don't know anything. You're saying there is a multitude of things that I have access to. And there is exponentially greater information that I have no concept of. That is that sense of holistic self showing up in a tiny version and this large universal experience and, and where we don't know what happens after we die. We don't know. Nobody really does. But I think about if we can become humble in the way that we show up to that moment and say like, okay, well, I literally don't know. I have some great ideas. Mm -hmm. I have some desires. I know what I would like to know is true. But realistically, my logical self, my mind is only a part of the whole. Mm -hmm. And I have to be willing to set cognitive self down for a moment and allow other parts of self to speak up and to have an experience of integration with all of the things and all of the experiences that we go through. So I can't remember what my question was in that, but I really liked talking to you, Kaylee. (laughs) Have coaching practice. Why don't you give the listeners just a minute to figure out what you're bringing to the table and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah. So for those local in Western New York, I do provide death doula services. Um, We can discuss what that looks like a bit more, but effectively I help people die beautiful deaths. Um, So that's planning, that's space holding, that's grief support, that is legacy planning, vigil planning, holding, et cetera, helping families make compassionate closures. Uh, I like to do that work in person. Yeah. Uh, remotely, I do offer life coaching services. They are obviously informed by my clinical education, but my also like spiritual and death background. And I also am a death educator. I now teach the curriculum through which I was certified as a death doula. It's called the Anamkara Academy. It is the creation of my beloved mentor, Mary Taliano. And that is a wonderful, absolutely life-changing three-month curriculum. I encourage people to take it who are not only interested in practicing as a death doula, but for people who are afraid of death, who are called to renegotiating their experience with life by knowing death more intimately, And also people who think that somebody they love might die one day (laughs) because spoiler is going to happen. And I think really one of the best ways we can love somebody is by loving them when they're wilting, when they're decaying, when they're vulnerable, when they don't smell so nice and they are dependent and need us most. So, um, yeah, I also have a podcast that I have not recorded an episode in like almost a year, but there's good stuff. It's the Scrappy Soul podcast. It's on Spotify and Apple Music. And uh, you can find me at KayleeDanu.com or on Instagram at 
C-A-I-L-I underscore D-A-N-I-E-U. I'll make sure all those are in the show notes because you have a beautiful name that is not easy to spell and I don't want to not find you if they're looking. (laughs) So that'll all be there. Kaylee, thank you again for making space, for having capacity in your life to move through what amounted to um, absolute the end and deciding, nope, just kidding. We're rewriting this tale. It means a lot to have you in, in the in the world and to know you're out there, but also to just call you friend. So thank you. Mm, thank you so, so much. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to episode 101 of Restorative Grief. I do love the lightness in Kaylee's retelling of her story. And I hope you too can recognize the value of laughter here. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Two things can be true. We can experience laughter and heartache, heaviness for what was, and levity toward what will be. Kaylee's story and work is an invitation into the sacred space of intentional living, the here and now gift of breath and presence that we're all craving. So I hope with her story and through your own work, you are able to heed the call. If this is your first time listening, you are a gift. I hope you believe in your own worth and your own value today more than anything else, because I am grateful you're here. And I hope you'll continue listening and find something that brings you some levity and brightness of your own. Please remember to subscribe to the show so you won't miss any of the weekly episodes and leave a five-star review. Tell me what you think. I love to hear from you. I love knowing which episodes and guests resonated with you. And if you want to connect, you can find me in the show notes, reach out at mandykpar.com or find me on Twitter, threads, or Instagram, because I'd love to connect. And as always, one last thing, please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.